Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Good afternoon and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK for all of Southern California and for the world through kpfk.org. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're making it a habit to listen to us every Tuesday at 1 o'clock, California time, West Coast time. And uh, we're podcast also. And I've been posting on YouTube and picking up a lot of extra listeners on YouTube just the audio, of course, but uh, people seem to use YouTube as a search engine, so a lot of new listeners are coming to us that way. And so however you listen, whether through YouTube, a podcast, uh, stream on demand at theagelesswisdom.com, or hopefully live, I think there's a special feeling that goes with uh, knowing you're part of the group mind when you listen live, uh, either via the radio in Southern California or uh, the Internet. Nice to have you with us in any event. We have a wonderful guest today and a very challenging and difficult topic. I think the central issue and the tangential issues that we're going to talk about today are filled with contradiction and paradox. It's a, it's a, a grand enigma that uh, not only merits some interest and some study, but as my guest will tell you, there's a sense of urgency, really a a strong need, a demand, an imperative, really, to figure out what is going on in the white nationalist Christian churches of America, and to some extent outside America as well, the, the white nationalism of Christian evangelicalism. And we're going to be using a lot of generalizations today, so let me say at the top that, of course, we're using a broad brush. We're not talking about all Christians being fascists. We're not talking about all evangelicals being white supremacists or autocrats or working consciously to replace democracy with a theocracy. But we're talking about some really significant numbers, and a big part of the of the political base of the last administration, which has done everything that it can to overthrow this government. So, right wing religion, white Christian nationalism, plays a big role in this. And so, I've been fortunate enough to find an author who has a fairly new book called Confronting Christo-Fascism, and we're going to talk to her today. I want to make sure you also understand that fascism is not just a nasty name that we're going to throw around as a bunch of liberals or, or lefties, you know, to call somebody a Nazi or a fascist. This is not just a, a, a chant or a slogan that we use when we speak about people on the right. But if you follow conservative philosophy to the right and keep going further to the right 
And then further to the right and further to the right, at some point, conservatism becomes fascism. And the irony begins with the idea that they wave the American flag and talk about freedom. But it's a weird kind of uncivilized uh, freedom that involves a worship of despots and tyrants and autocrats and oddly is funded by some of the biggest corporations and multinational groups in America. It's such a strange alliance. I'm really excited in, in the best possible way to do this program with my guest today. The author of many books, I think 15 or books or more, we'll find out. Carolyn Baker, who's with us from Boulder, Colorado today. Carolyn, good afternoon and welcome to KPFK. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So, exactly, first of all, how many books have you written? Uh, something like 15. I, I'm sort of losing count, but I believe this is my 15th book. And um, people can see all of those books and order them at my website at carolynbaker.net. Well, I know the first I learned of you was when you wrote a book on joy with our friend Andrew Harvey a few years ago. And... This newest book of yours, Confronting Christofascism, doesn't sound like a book that's filled with a whole lot of joy. So why don't you tell us why you've gone from writing about mysticism and spirituality and social issues in a very positive context to a book that confronts, as the title says, the fascism, especially in the religious right. Yes, well, um, the subtitle of the book is Healing the Evangelical Wound. I grew up as an evangelical, and uh, I have a chapter in the book uh, talking about uh, my upbringing and, um, you know, my journey uh, of exploration of my sexual orientation and all of the hell that broke loose as a result of that in my family and in Christian circles. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, I've been writing for about 15 years on the global crisis, on climate change and the possible collapse of systems. And uh, my writing partner, Andrew Harvey, and I, we've written four books together. And uh, our quartet called Radical Regeneration will come out sometime next year. Uh, it's going to be the four books that we wrote in one volume. Um, but we started out our writing journey uh, just talking about joy because both of us, have been writing on some level on the global crisis. And, um, you know, we were joking, sitting around joking about, you know, how people are calling us gloomers and doomers. And out of the blue, I said, you know, why don't we write a book on joy? And Andrew, you know, you know his drama. And it's, yes, darling, let's do. And so <laughs> we did. We did. And uh, then that led us to, to three other books. But... Um, in there, we talk about the distinction between joy and happiness, that, that happiness is circumstantial. You know, if, if life is going well, then we're happy. Uh, joy is something deeper, something that we can experience even when we're not happy. Um, sometimes people, you know, in tremendous places of suffering have talked about the experience of joy in the midst of that. One comes to mind, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He was a survivor of Auschwitz and talks about how, you know, finding meaning is what got him through uh, that experience, and meaning and joy are really very close. 
But um, I wrote this book uh, this year because of the sense of urgency that I felt and feel about the trend, the trajectory, I should say, that is, you know, that's happening toward fascism and the loss of our democracy as a result of the Trump presidency, which uh, I don't think is completely finished. Um, he lost, but it's very possible that he will come back in a big way to run in 2024. And one of the things that really compelled me to write this book is the unholy alliance, as I call it, between Trumpism and the fascist worldview and evangelical Christianity. Not to say that all evangelicals are pro-fascist, but what they basically are believing and proselytizing is a worldview of domination and a necessity to have the born-again experience and then to follow, you know, in the footsteps of fascist policies and fundamentalist politics. So, you know, as I look at the political landscape right now, I'm very concerned not only that we're losing our democracy, but that evangelical Christianity is superbly helping us do that. Let's talk a little bit about exactly what evangelicalism is, because I think some people are under the impression that it's a very old movement. It's really fairly new, 150 years or so. And it seems to embrace Baptists or evangelical Presbyterians. There are a number of non-denominational churches that call themselves evangelical. And it does seem to go around this interpretation of born-again. Mystics have their own understanding of what that's a reference to, but fundamentalists tend to take everything so literally that it's difficult to understand all the nuance in a phrase like born again. But from your research, Carolyn, what can you tell us about the existence of fundamentalism, its, its birth in the late 19th century? Actually, um, there was a guy in Europe named John Nelson Darby, um, who was a Christian, kind of a mainline Christian, um, who in his life became more and more uh, moving in the direction of fundamentalist Christianity. And he came to the United States and went back and forth to his country and, and to our country and began to teach a lot about the end times. And um, one of his students in this country was a guy named Cyrus Schofield, um, who, with Darby, uh, kind of set up these um, timelines uh, of history, and he called them dispensations. And so you have a, a dispensation uh, of creation, and then this and that, and this and that, until you come down to the last dispensation, which Darby and Schofield thought were the times that we're living in now. Um, but back then, it was, you know, when they were talking about this, it was the 19th century. Um, Cyrus Schofield, by the way, was a veteran of the Confederacy. So he came, you know, bearing all of his uh, white nationalist, white privilege uh, trappings. And he created a 
study Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. You can walk into any Christian bookstore today and buy a Schofield Reference Bible. I think you can read it all over, you know, online. You can read it, you know, in two minutes. You can access it. But it's this look at history and and how they believed God was moving through history to lead up to the physical return of Jesus Christ in which he would take all of the Christians up to heaven and then there would be judgment upon those who were not Christian. And it's a whole complicated um, uh, worldview that I don't want to you know spend a lot of time on, but the main thing to understand about evangelicalism and what it is is that prior to Darby and Schofield and this movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, mainline Christianity was basically just following the teachings of Jesus, you know, reading the Bible, doing what the Bible says, um, and particularly at the end of World War I, uh, mainline Christianity was very involved in social programs, and uh, trying to help the poor. There was the temperance union. And, um, you know, they were really concerned about social action. Well, this really disturbed the fundamentalist Christians, the evangelicals. And by the way, I use those two words interchangeably, evangelical and fundamentalist. Uh, and so the fundamentalists came together and they created their own movement, and it was really a movement based in racism, sexism, and um, prosperity, the prosperity gospel. But there's one thing that everyone must do in order to be an evangelical, and that is to have a literal born-again experience where you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and commit your life to following his teachings and um, trying to evangelize as many people as possible, thus the word evangelical. The second most popular book in terms of sales in the world, right behind the Bible, is a book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. This book has been revered and studied by Catholic and Protestant alike. It's very austere. There's no prosperity gospel in in this work. This is a work written by a monk, really, who understood that Christ was a non-materialist or anti-materialist, who really did not like rich people, and who hung around with the poor, ministered to the poor, who, you know, refused to even wear shoes or... Ride a horse, you know. Imagine the stallion, the great Arabian stallion that Christ could have rode around on. Oh, yes. The the fine robes that he could have worn if he were a fundamentalist, so-called. But the idea of imitating Christ, now that's very different from the fundamentalist idea of being born again and simply accepting Christ as your Savior, and then you can be as mean and nasty as you want, I guess, I think a big part of what's most intriguing for me, Carolyn, about this whole tele-evangelist support of uh, our last president, 45, I won't even say his name, is this prosperity gospel and the idea that Christ has been portrayed as a sissy by the mainstream 
Christian church, and he's really a buffed out, ripped, mean, sexist warrior in the physical sense, and more a reflection of the angry, wrathful sense of divinity that we find in much of the Old Testament. It seems to me that the evangelical is not interested in the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, the meek shall inherit the earth. You know, lessons about kindness and and generosity and forgiveness and compassion and mercy. And more interested, it seems, in this Old Testament, Leviticus. And, uh, of course, Revelation also, but... Revelation is such a strange book that it could be interpreted a hundred different ways. They seem to be prophets having some very bad dreams and, and nightmares and visions. Well, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> have at it. Okay. So uh, one of the points that I make in the book over and over again is that after the First World War, r- around about 1919 or 1920, um, evangelicals parted ways big time with mainline Christianity. And the reason, one of the reasons, well, there are many reasons, but one of the fundamental reasons was that evangelicals were terrified of the changes that were happening in the culture. I mean, women were getting the vote. We had just come through a world war. And there was this guy named John Scopes in Tennessee who was teaching evolution, that somehow humans evolved from, you know, lower life forms. And, um, you know, and there was this big Scopes trial. And, you know, the beginning of the 1920s was, of course, the, you know, the uh, decade right before the Depression. And people were celebrating a war was over and prosperity. And it was the age of the flappers and, you know, the speakeasies and prohibition and, you know, all of that uh, glitter of, of the time that, you know, people just sort of said, you know, we're done with the war. We're having a great time. And, of course, this did not look good to the evangelical Christians because, I mean, those skirt lines were coming up for women, and they were getting the vote. And you have to understand that people like Cyrus Schofield were instrumental in founding fundamentalism in this country, and they were very white nationalists. They were very white supremacist. And they were also, many of them, businessmen. So the idea that you know, there should be a quality of opportunity uh, was absolutely anathema to them, you know, because we, the businessmen, are up here, and you working class people, you're down there, and, you know, it was a, a reaction. Fundamentalism in the United States was a reaction to enormous cultural changes. And the, when they parted ways from the mainline Christians, There was this demarcation, this line that said, if you are born again, you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, you're with us. And if you haven't done that, it doesn't matter how much you talk about the Beatitudes. It doesn't matter how much you talk about what Christ taught. That's not as important as having accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. 
because that's your insurance policy to heaven after you die. And that makes them very exclusive. Uh, they're not part of the uh, body of world religions. They don't honor or respect other religions. They're right. quite hostile, it seems, the, yes. about that whole idea, which, again, is rather medieval. Now we're back to the Crusades. Yeah, it actually is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's merciless in many ways. It's mean-spirited in many ways. And if you listen long enough to the televangelists or you read their books, you know, they may come across as loving Christians or, you know, emphasizing how important love is. But when you really get down to it and they start talking about, you know, who's born again and what, who's not born again and what's going to happen to the people who are not born again or saved, as they call it, you know, those people are going to go to hell and burn. And it doesn't really matter because they made their choice uh, and they're not following Jesus. And so who cares? So it's it's very mean-spirited. Also, you know, there's there's only, only two genders, you know. And, uh, you know, if the transgender person dies uh, because they're murdered or somebody gets AIDS because they're homosexual... Well, that's God's judgment on them. So there's a lot of mean-spiritedness under that love talk. And a lot of emphasis on money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For all that they say about the prosperity gospel, what it seems to come down to is interpreting love as a donation. Absolutely. Send me money. And they seem to have no issue, these TV preachers in particular, about living in multi-million dollar mansions and literally driving Rolls Royces. Yeah, Joel Osteen is famous for driving his $350,000 Lamborghini to his church in Houston, uh, where he has a membership of about ten or 12,000 people, many of whom are, are poor. Uh, I have a section in my book called The Heavenly ATM. And, it, you know, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about here. It's like, you know, give, 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 give. God will prosper you if you give. And, you know, I'll be able to take this wonderful gospel to, you know, the far reaches of the globe, you know, but you got to give. And, you know, God will really love you if you do that. And so we have, you know, people like um, uh, Creflo Dollar, which I love his last name. Um, Benny Hinn, uh, T.D. Jakes, Rick Warren, and some of these folks who are really, you know, they fly around in their private jets and they drive the shiny cars and they, they really say, you know, if you follow the Lord and you give, 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 you can live like this too. Now, as I said earlier, there is this element of businessmen who were instrumental in founding fundamentalism and uh, we had a, a group of, of guys in the 1930s uh, who formed the Christian Businessmen's Committee International, uh, along with the Gideons, you know, the, the Bible that you find in your hotel room. And they kind of set the stage for this prosperity gospel. And they were all about making money. So, um, y- you know, it's like Jesus taught about you know, giving to the poor and hanging out with the prostitutes and nah, you know, no. Because 
the, one of the justifications is, okay, Jesus said all those things, but then we had Paul. You know, Paul who was homophobic and sexist and told, you know, talked about how people should treat their slaves and, you know, and then we had after, after the Bible was, was completely written, then we have these church fathers like Tertullian and Augustine uh, who were very sexist and very homophobic and very rigid. And, you know, they're, they were the founders of, of the Christian movement, the, the Catholic Church, eventually. And they were sexist, and they ruled with an iron hand. And so what the, what the fundamentalists say is, yeah, but Jesus, his, his message was incomplete. The most important thing about Jesus is he died on the cross for your sins, accept him. And then listen to Paul, and listen to the church fathers, and then you have the complete gospel. Well, what's happened over the centuries, of course, is that there's much more listening to Paul and the church fathers and the Christian Businessmen's Committee than there is listening to the very simple teachings of Jesus. I yeah. got to take a station break. We'll come right back with more. We have another entire segment with my guest, Carolyn Baker. Her most recent book, as you've probably surmised if you've just tuned in in the last few minutes, is entitled Confronting Christo-Fascism. And we're talking about that part of Christianity, that actually part of evangelicals, because I do know evangelicals who are very progressive and and very open-hearted and open-minded, and they call themselves particularly black evangelicals. So it's not an entirely white thing, but it is born, as Carolyn was saying, out of Reconstruction after the Civil War by white supremacists and and the Klan. And we see elements of that even today. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. And we'll be back right after this. Hi, it's Carrie Harrison here with a teaser for a series of upcoming KPFK live streaming events. Yep, live events with front row seats every time. In the next weeks, you're going to hear much more about it. It's our way of giving back with a series of specially curated content from health to wealth. And it's just for you, our KPFK listener donors. We want to make sure this is a time for you to thrive. So we're stepping it up. It's going to be fun. And we're back. We're talking about organized religion on the right. We're talking about the strange confluence that we see in the alt-right base of the last administration. And now we're seeing, even in school board elections, we see local politicians, even doctors and nurses, have to take off their scrubs in public because they're being attacked by a very nasty, mean-spirited, hateful, and I would say uncivilized group of people who are not only motivated by politics, but more accurately, by a fear-based organized religion. And how ironic it is to use fear to teach the Christian gospel when, like all religions, really, if you study them carefully, the one thread that connects religion is love. And yet, the fear of the other seems to be such a central part of 
white Christian nationalism. Fear of the other. It seems so unchristian. Donald Trump, I can't imagine a more unchristian person. And yet he loved it when evangelical leaders told him he was the chosen one. Trump used those very words as he turned and looked at the sky above. I am the chosen one. It's just terrifying to think. And then to consider that there's millions of people who think of them as living in the light of the creator and the love of Jesus and using that to justify their hatred, their mean-spiritedness, their oppression of people of color, of women, of gay people and bisexuals and trans people, and even even heterosexuality is repressed on the right. Let's talk a little about this because Carolyn, let me reintroduce you. Carolyn Baker is my guest today, the author of a fabulous new book called Confronting Christo-Fascism. Your experience as a young girl growing up in a family that was very fundamentalist included an awakening around your own sexuality. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with that internal struggle of having these ultra-conservative values being pushed in your face while you're You've got this inner sense of who you are developing. Yeah, I grew up, um, as you did, Michael, in the Midwest, um, in northern Indiana, with um, extremely fundamentalist Christian parents. I was an only child. Uh, And I have a chapter in the book called A Little Knowledge is a Dangerous Thing, in which I talk about um, uh, growing up fundamentalist and really buying into it in my teenage years. And all the while that, you know, Martin Luther King was doing these courageous and just miraculous things in the South for the Civil Rights Movement, I was saving my pennies to join the John Burt Society. Well, I went to a a college near my home. It was actually a Mennonite college. And uh, I commuted from home my first year of college. And, you know, it turns out that... uh, I thought, well, this is a religious school. This is safe. This is good. But the the Mennonites were very progressive at at that college. And I would read the school newspaper. And, you know, every week there'd be some news story about Martin Luther King's wonderful, you know, uh, civil rights uh, actions that week or that month. And, uh, you know, schools were getting integrated. And, you know, the civil rights movement was really in full swing. And then... You know, in the summer after I graduated, there was uh, there was the wonderful Freedom Riders. And today I look back on on the age that I was and the Freedom Riders movement, and I'm envious. You know, I think, oh God, if I wasn't steeped in all that fundamentalism, I could have been part of that, but I wasn't. And so, um, you know, the Mennonite school was a little bit too liberal for me. So I thought, you know, I needed to go off to our, our denominational Bible college. So I did. I went off to Moody Bible Institute, uh, which one of its mottos is the West Point of Christian Service. That tells you all you need to know about that school. Um, <laughs> and, uh, of course, I knew before I went to Bible college 
that I was attracted to women. And I knew that that was a horrible, horrible, horrible sin. I heard uh, people from church talking about, you know, how sinful and evil homosexuality was. And so long story short, I got involved with a woman in my second year at the Bible college and my life fell apart. All hell broke loose. I nearly committed suicide. And that led me then to, um, well, I got kicked out of the school for, for being gay. And that led me to apply to different universities. And I applied to Michigan State and I got accepted. And I spent four years at Michigan State. And that was my salvation in many ways because I got a good education. And over time, it wasn't right away, but over time, a period of five or six years, I was able to question everything I was raised with and become more comfortable with my sexual orientation. And, you know, it was really by asking questions and and really taking a hard look at how I was raised that I was able to liberate myself from, you know, my upbringing. And one of the things I want to emphasize about why I wrote this book You know, I said it's a bit of history, a bit of memoir, but it's also a bit of self-help because I I wrote this book also for the benefit of people who may be evangelical, but they're, they're becoming increasingly uncomfortable with that, or maybe they're recovering evangelicals and, you know, they're really assessing some of the damage that was done, some of the trauma that they experienced. So this is a book uh, of healing as well as history. I want to celebrate this uh, strange synchronicity that uh, Carolyn and I discovered only a few days ago that uh, we were both at Michigan State University at exactly the same time, <laughs> the exact same four-year period, walked the same paths, went to the same football games, I'm sure participated in the same lefty rallies and oh, yeah. anti-war demonstrations and And yet, here we are, uh, 50-plus years later, meeting like this. So uh, that state college in East Lansing uh, apparently generated its share of uh, progressive, well-educated, and like-minded women and men. I'd like to say something about that, um, Michael. You know, the other night I was watching Rachel Maddow, and um, she started the show by viewing a rally in front of the Michigan State Capitol, a fascist rally that happened the other day, I think it was Tuesday, Um, they're running a lot of extremely right-wing candidates in Michigan because that's part of the Republican agenda, is to run a lot of extremely right-wing Trump-supporting candidates. And I could only go back to a time when we had a rally in front of the state capitol in 1970, I think it was, around the time of Kent State. And, you know, we were protesting the Vietnam War. We were protesting the bombing of Cambodia and all of the things that we were protesting at that time. And what a day that was, maybe 500 students down there at the capitol protesting. And then the other night, to watch this fascist rally in front of the capitol... And, of course, there have been Michigan militia at the state capitol, you know, months ago as they were trying to get rid of Governor Whitmer. And, you know, they were all donning their AR-15s. 
So uh, it was quite a uh, quite a shock. Not really a shock, but it was heartbreaking, really, uh, to see that. Yeah, it's such a contradiction. What's odd about Michigan is its polarities. I grew up in southwestern Michigan on the lake opposite Chicago, where Republicans traditionally ran unopposed for all the local uh, municipal and county offices and the state representatives. You never saw a Democrat on the ballot. I mean, literally, not even on the ballot. Didn't even bother. It was all Republicans and very rural, very agricultural, very small town. And when I went to Michigan State in East Lansing, I was introduced to the Motor City culture. Detroit had the labor unions and, and the people of color and the poverty and, and the crime issues. And here we were together in the center of the state, the state capital, facing that contradiction. But I was so immersed in the university culture that I, I sort of forgot about how right-wing it was in the western half of the state and to a large extent the northern lower peninsula and then the upper, as we call it, very conservative up there, very rural. And I was the city hall and state capital beat correspondent for a local radio station, so I spent a lot of time at the state capital and to see what's happened there. And the takeover, these Klansmen used to just pretty much keep to themselves. But what has happened in the last five or six years is it seems to me, Carolyn, that they've been given an encouragement to come out and to be as mean and and uncivilized as if they have a right to be indecent. Because look at the president, who could not be more indecent and uncivilized. Yeah, uh, you know, he really supported them in coming out and doing what they've been doing. You know, they, um, you know, they tried to ki- tried to kidnap Whitmer. You know, and some of them are doing hard time for trying to do that. They show up at the house of the Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. You know, on a Christmas Eve or something. And uh, you know, because she certifies the elections. And, you know, they're protesting outside her house. And then uh, there's a guy running for attorney general of the state of Michigan who has told Dana Nessel, who's the current attorney general of Michigan, that if he wins over her, if he defeats her, he will come after her and prosecute her for her part in the, you know, fraudulent Michigan elections of 2020. So it's it's really dark and twisted and mean-spirited. The one word that we need to use here, even if only as a question that we haven't touched on yet, is cult. And when we talk about the interface of religion and politics, particularly those in organized religion who would consciously, purposefully attack democracy because their goal is to replace it with a theocracy, it looks very much like a cult, very much like a death cult, given this whole description about the end times and being saved before you die and the Left Behind series and their interpretation of the rapture and and all of that stuff that's very death-oriented. 
It is. And as I said, one of the reasons that I wrote this book was to reach out to people who may be kind of on the fence about their evangelical ties. You know, maybe they still are, maybe they do still identify as an evangelical, or maybe they don't anymore, but they realize the impact that this cult thinking has left on them. And so I've got an entire chapter on steps to healing and recovery from all of that. Um, it's a long process, and people need a lot of support. There are online support groups. Uh, I do a lot of coaching and spiritual counseling, and often with people who've had a similar journey in evangelicalism. Um, but there are you know, some tools here in the book that I think are going to be very useful. And uh, I have a whole page on your spiritual path is functional if. And so I talk about how do you know that the path you are following is healthy and functional and life-supporting. This death cult thing that you're talking about, I just have to say that ultimately what fundamentalist Christians believe is that there's going to be a rapture. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take them up to heaven with him because they've accepted him as their personal savior. By the way, in their meat bodies. Yeah. They're all going to take their meat bodies with them. Yeah, exactly. They're not just good, not souls. They're, their physical bodies are going to go up. And then there's going to be a long seven-year period here on earth where the Antichrist will be in power. And he will demand that in order for you to buy or sell anything, you have to worship him and have his mark either on your forehead or on the back of your hand. And if you get that mark, there's no chance that you can ever go to heaven. If you don't get that mark, well, you might be killed, you might starve to death, but at least you'll go to heaven. And then Jesus is going to come back and destroy the earth. Let that sink in. Let that sink in in terms of why most evangelicals could care less about climate change and the destruction of nature. So this is the grand plan that Schofield and others uh, who believe in these dispensations, you know, have taught. And this is what most born-again, fundamentalist, evangelical Christians ultimately believe. And this is being taught from the pulpit, from the yes. altar, yes. whatever they... Yep, yep. particularly in the, their little Sunday school prophecy classes, you know, and in these books, like you mentioned, the Left Behind series, and uh, other televangelists who are doing series on prophecy and the future. Um, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, that's totally based on Schofield's Bible. Yeah, I read that back in the 80s at the urging of my talk radio audience. And it occurred to me that these so-called prophecies were just nightmares that these Bronze Age scribes were having. I mean, this is a time, the Bible is from a time a hundred years after Christ. Christ never wrote anything down. So this is all hearsay three, four generations later. There's very little agreement. And a Roman emperor, Constantine, put the thing together from 50 or more books. 
the Apocrypha is very rich. There's all kinds of books, most of which were buried and burned, and four were selected to be the books of the so-called New Testament to serve Constantine's idea of forming a government and using religion to create a government and, a, and an army. That's what that's all about. Why these four? And I'm not sure they're even being read. There seems to be, as I said earlier, a lot of emphasis on the Old Testament. I had a Christian Uber driver that was going to convert me on the way to the airport one day. And she started going on about how God hates this and hates that. And I said, really? Your sense of the divine creator of this whole universe is personified as an individual who hates, as it isn't hate the result of hurt, isn't an angry, wrathful God a projection of a human weakness of hurt and confusion and anxiety? This is the God that you're talking about, a God who hates? The next 10 minutes on the way to the airport, there was very little conversation after that. I can imagine. <laughs> and I think part of the problem is faith gets interpreted in many people as when it comes to these matters, I must turn off my logic and my ability to think critically for to be reasonable is to counsel evil. I mean, think of it. I firmly believe that. And one of the, one of the things that I say here in the book is that you have to educate yourself and learn to think critically. That doesn't mean that if you haven't gone to college, you have to go off now to a four-year college and get a degree. It just means learn how to think. Learn how to question. And pay attention to what doesn't feel right in your gut. And you're told in evangelical circles that, well, that's just the devil making you resist and tempting you not to pay attention to what the Bible says or the preacher says. But in fact, it's your intuition, it's your really, I believe, higher self telling you, this is an insult to your soul. You should question it. That's That, that raises another question. I've never found a fundamentalist who could answer it for me. If God and the devil hate each other, our opposites personifications of good and evil, then why does Satan agree to run hell for God? Because it seemed to me <laughs> if the devil, Satan, Lucifer, whoever is running hell was doing it on his own, it would be a grand festival of depravity. Right. Instead, it's eternal punishment and damnation, so he must work for God. Explain that. And they never can. It's like oh my God, I've never even thought of that. And they quickly changed the subject. But I've never found anybody to say, if God hates the devil, then why did he hire him to run hell? I love the question. <laughs> Let me know if you ever find anybody who can answer it. <laughs> Carolyn Baker is my guest. Her latest book is Confronting Christo-Fascism. And uh, do yourself a favor. Check this book out. It's available everywhere. Uh, Carolyn, you also had a newsletter that people can subscribe to. Tell us how to find out more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, for the last 15 years or so, I've been writing a lot uh, and thinking a lot about um, climate 
change, climate chaos, and the potential collapse of systems as a result of of climate change and other exigencies that we can't necessarily control. Just for an example, you know, we're a few miles from where Michael is sitting right now are lots of container ships out there in the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach that, you know, are waiting to come into port because, you know, and the whole supply chain thing and the the truck drivers then aren't unloading those container ships and distributing all those things. You know, that happened very quickly. That clogging of everything happened very quickly. I don't know how fast we're going to be able to unclog, but this is how fragile many of our systems are. So I've been looking at all that for the last 15 or so years, writing about it. And uh, in addition to books that I've written, uh, I've also created a daily news digest that is subscription-based, and you can find out about it at my website, carolynbaker.net, because seven days a week, unless I'm sick or traveling, I publish the Daily News Digest. It covers economics, the environment, the world news, scandal and corruption, the anti-democracy report, civil liberties, and cultural events. And then I do something that few people do at all in newsletters, I provide an inspiration section at the end because after you've read all this news, you might feel a little down. And so I give you some inspiration at the end of the digest. Check it out, carolynbaker.net. Click on the subscription tab and join several thousand people around the world who are getting the digest every day. You know, one of the things I love about doing this program, the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK, is that uh, we challenge this whole binary idea that if you're critical of religion, you must be an atheist or at least agnostic. Yet more than one-third of American adults now describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And that number grows every year. And it's so exciting to me to realize that we should take a critical look at these Bronze Age religions Mm -hmm. that, like every other institution, becomes crystallized and concretized and corrupt at the very top. And share the good news that there's plenty of opportunity to grow spiritually, outside of the tenets and rituals and and restrictions of these organized religions. Absolutely. I did a little Google search on Christianity the other day on just how many denominations there were. Google tells me there are 45,000 forms of Christianity alone. So calling yourself a Christian doesn't really say very much. No, it doesn't. Other than you're you're interested in these Gospels that Constantine selected out of the Apocrypha. And I hope Christians will read the Nag Hammadi Gospels, mm-hmm. the so-called Gnostic Gospels, and wade into the Apocrypha, and then read the Quran and maybe the Upanishads and the Gita and some Buddhist sutras and some... Confucian wisdom, some Taoism, and 
you know, some of the mystical literature that caused many Christian mystics to be persecuted, tortured, burned at the stake by the inquisitors and open their minds and their hearts. Um, we can pursue the, the longing to understand ourselves, our relationship to each other, to nature, to the magnificent beauty of this universe, and think of ourselves as loving, kind, compassionate, spiritual beings outside of organized religion. And Absolutely. That's a song I want to sing. That's a tune I want to toot. <laughs> you bet. I'm with you. I'm totally with you, Michael. I know you are, and, yeah. and and I think to listeners of this radio program. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a joy to have you, the author of a book about joy. Oh, well, thank you. Happiness for no reason. That's the way I describe <laughs> joy. Thank you. We don't need reasons at all to be happy. No. And uh, let's do it again. Let's do it. Okay? I would love it. Love to have you back. Uh, we've got a few more minutes left here on the Mystery School, so stay with us. I'll be right back. After this short break, you're listening to 90.7 FM in Southern California, KPFK. KPFK Permers consistently dig deep to get at the truth and then tell it like it is to make a difference locally and globally. Please pledge your financial support to maintain KPFK's vital, independent role in contemporary media. You can do so now at kpfk.org or by calling 818-985-5735. KPFK, powered by the people. We just have a few minutes left for the Edgeless Wisdom Mystery School today, and so I want to use this time to remind you that we are in our fall fun drive, and this is a time when we remind you to join us in the Pacific Commission for Peace and Social Justice through broadcasting. Extremely diverse, but always progressive, news, views, information, and entertainment. Your donations are tax-deductible because KPFK and Pacifica are a charity and the word charity, which used to be capitalized, is actually a spiritual word, a synonym for the Greek word agape. This is the highest form of love. Charity, traditionally, has been understood to be a virtue. In fact, charity is the cornerstone virtue. It is first among all of the good things that you could do for the world. An unselfish repayment for the gift of life, for the opportunity to be of service to each other, an unselfish form of service. And in most cases, it takes the form of money because it's just such an easy transaction. But you could volunteer your time at KPFK. You could tell your friends about all the wonderful programming on KPFK. You could leave reviews on podcast sites. You could write blogs and encourage people. There's all manner of ways that you can give to the Pacific Commission. But the easiest of all and the most useful is money. The Red Cross or other charitable organizations will tell you the same thing. After a flood or a hurricane or an earthquake or tsunami or some other disaster, people often want to send clothing and food. And the Red Cross and Red Crescent and other international charities will say, that's a nice intention, but, you know, it really makes it difficult for us to help people. 
with those types of in-kind donations, what we need is cash that we can spend on-site to meet the particular needs of the people that we serve. And so it is with KPFK. We value whatever you can do to support us in a non-financial way, but we still have a light bill to pay. We have a 110,000-watt signal coming off Mount Wilson 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year round. We have countless other expenses just maintaining the equipment that we use to keep this radio station on the air. It takes money. And if this were a commercial radio station, this hour would have been only 44 minutes long. For the other 16 minutes would have gone to commercials for products and services that you don't need, probably don't even want, and are not in your best interest anyway. Instead, we take six or eight minutes out of an hour to appeal to you to join us as members of KPFK, as voting members. And by the way, the election for local station board members concluded last week. And we want to thank those of you who are voting members for participating in that election and all the candidates who ran for local station board. You see, as a community listener-sponsored radio station, we're your radio station. So help us out. Call 818-985-KPFK. That's 818-985-5735. Make your pledge, your contribution, $100, $150 once a year, or be really smart about it. How about a contribution of $10 or $15 a month? You know, you probably pay somewhere between $8 and $12 for a single premium channel on your cable TV. Maybe you watch one movie a month. If you don't use it at all, you don't even think about it, you just keep paying that $8 at $12 a month for a cable TV channel that you rarely use. But imagine, if you made a donation of 10 or $15 each month with Sustainer Circle, set it up, forget it, we'll take care of it, that tax-deductible contribution will be drawn seamlessly from your bank account every month, you won't even miss it, 10 or $15. That's a nice contribution to keep this radio station on the air, to support its mission, And when you hear an appeal like this on KPFK, you can enjoy that wonderful feeling of knowing, yeah, I'm already a member. Every month, I make a little donation of $10 or $15. That's called Sustainer Circle. And to find that, simply point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate and look for Sustainer Circle, $10 a month. $15, $20 a month if you can, or $5 a month. My God, anyone can afford $5 or $10 a month, but it's imperative that you do that today. Do it right now. We need your participation. We need your contribution. We need you to join us and be a member of this radio station. Not just this program, the Mystery School, Tuesdays at 1, but the hundreds, there's over a 100 different programs on this radio station Every week, incredible programs on any progressive topic that you can imagine. That's what you're supporting when you go to kpfk.org slash donate, look for Sustainer Circle, and set up your contribution. It'll take you three minutes for $10, $15, $20 a month. I appreciate it, and you'll feel great. Thank you very much. 
Remember, this program streams on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. It's also podcast to all podcatchers, aggregators, and directories. You can find the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner.